Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Historically black colleges and universities have seen a surge of applications, enrollments, and donations in recent years. In a new book, The State Must Provide, Atlantic staff writer Adam Harris places HBCUs within the broader development of American education and the struggle for equal rights and opportunity. Like so many other facets of American life, the structural racism in higher education isn't even hidden so much as normalized. Harris writes, America's colleges and universities have a dirty open secret. They have never given black people an equal chance to succeed. And then, because the past is not exclusively sadness, we'll talk about the unique Bay Area history of garlic noodles with KQED's Luke Tsai. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In his new book, The State Must Provide, Atlantic staff writer Adam Harris fills in an important piece of the history of American racial discrimination. While many people are familiar with Brown v. Board of Education, which at least legally outlawed segregated schools, there were similar battles in higher education that preceded Brown. They shaped the landscape of education for black people, and an honest reading of the history shows that not nearly enough has been done to correct decades of discrimination and inequitable funding. In outlining the barriers that hampered the education of black Americans, Harris also examines the important role of historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, as a path to upward mobility and the challenges they faced in accessing the resources available to predominantly white institutions. Adam Harris joins us this morning to talk about the book. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me about your own experience going to college and how you first started to notice the inequities in higher education. Yeah, so I went to Alabama A&M University. Um, it's in normal Alabama, and it was always sort of a family institution, right? So my mom went there, my uncle went there, my sister uh, was there at the same time that I was there. And so um, I, I, it's always felt like a, a community and a place that's sort of like home. Um, and during my time there, right, I had incredible professors that that actually, you know, cared about me as as a person. But but they're, they're sort of the things that I started to notice when I was at a and um, uh, that that sort of rubbed me as or struck me as interesting, right? Like there is an institution about 10 minutes away, the University of Alabama Huntsville. Um, it's a predominantly white institution um, founded around 1950. So about 75 years after my own institution. Um, but when I went over to UAH for the first time, uh, there were a couple of things I noticed, right? There, there 
library was open three hours longer than ours. Um, they had new buildings. They had, um, you know, books that, that our own library, you know, newer books. Um, if there were potholes, I wouldn't have been able to notice. Um, and then on top of that, in Huntsville, which is a city that's about 30% Black, they only had about 10% Black students. And in addition, they had an even larger endowment than my own institution. And so I really tried to figure out um, after I, I you know, finished school, I you know, went into the workforce, I became a journalist um, and I started covering higher education. I really wanted to understand if, if my experience, that experience of, of being at an institution um, and, and you know, looking, looking on the other side and saying, oh, well, the grass kind of looks a little bit greener, um, even though I have you know, a great experience, seeing if that it was an anomaly um, or if um, it was something that was more indicative of how of the experience of black students in higher education writ large. And so that was sort of the the roots of, of the idea for the book. And, and one thing that's fascinating is, you know, you use the phrase grass is greener um, multiple times in the book. One of the things that comes up is that many of the HBCUs that you write about in the book actually have these like core infrastructural issues where, you know, it rains and it gets muddy and it's the grass is literally greener at the white campuses nearby than it is in, in those institutions. Yeah. And it's 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 also interesting to that point, um, the way that states have studied that um, over more than a century. Right. So going back to the beginning of the, the 20th century, you have Kentucky uh, bring in a um, bring in a professor from Hampton Institute, a historically black college um, along the shore of Virginia uh, and basically see what would we need in order to lift our Institute for Black Students up to the standards of Tuskegee? And he says, you know, the girls' dorm lacks a fire escape and it's fire prone. The boys' dorm is literally in a mud puddle, right? The um, the electrical plant needs uh, doesn't have power. The buildings are old. The professors are underpaid. But the student body is fantastic. The professors are doing a great job. It's just a matter of you all underfunding the, the physical plant. Um, and, and so that, that legacy has sort of continued on, uh, you know, large part unaddressed and it's, it really, you know, something as simple as, as fixing the drainage just really shows the levels to which, you know, HBCUs have had to do this sort of deferred maintenance and, and have sort of done more with less, right? They're, they're still doing this sort of yeoman's work of educating these students, even though the state is not sort of fulfilling uh, its duty to, to help the institutions. Maybe you could just sketch out for us here in California, you know, where we don't have uh, HBCUs. How did these institutions come into being? Yeah, so HBCUs, you know, are, are institutions founded pre- predominantly after the Civil War um, that were basically created to educate Black students when they were being shut out of the majority of higher education. Um, and so there were a couple of ways that HBCUs came into existence. There was state and federal funding that created some of them. There was private philanthropy that created others. Um, some are church affiliated, um, but but. HBCUs and a lot of HBCUs ended up receiving a, a, another injection of funding in, in 1890 when the federal government passed the second Morrill Act. Um, and, and the Morrill Act is interesting because I, I, you know, I home in on, on that mm-hmm. as sort of 
a root in the book, um, in part because that 1862 Murill Act, the first Murill Act, is really what gave us this sort of university systems that we recognize today. So like University of California is a, um, a land grant institution. Um, uh, you know, Michigan State University, Iowa State University, Auburn University, Penn State, uh, West Virginia, these are all land grant institutions, Ohio State. And so when you think about the roots of um, that state university system, it, it comes from this grant which gave states um, land, expropriated land from Native Americans through lopsided treaty and, and violent treaties and violence, um, and gave states that land that they could sell in order to fund an institution. But by and large, Black students were not allowed to attend those institutions. And so by 1890, when it came time for those institutions to ask the federal government for more money, um, the federal government said, okay, you can, we'll give you more money, but you at least have to create um, or, uh, or fund separate institutions for, for Black students. And so, you know, some HBCUs did receive a, another injection of funding, but it was also, again, a sort of lopsided injection because those predominantly white institutions, which hadn't been enrolling Black students, were also receiving more money yeah. at the time. Well, and, you know, these institutions are created at this moment of what you call the lie of separate but equal. Um, and maybe you could describe how that particular phrase sort of got embedded in American jurisprudence. Yeah. So you 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 start to see, um, you know, late 1880s, early 1890s. Um, States passing laws, you know, the separate car, Louisiana separate car act, um, uh, the Murrell Act, where they say that, you know, you can have a separate institution. So there start to be these laws that really enshrine um, some of what had had been custom. Um, and, and then you move into Plessy v. Ferguson, which grew out of the lawsuit around the, the, the separate car act, where Homer Plessy um, uh, you know, a, a man who who well could have passed for white, um, you know, sits in the white section of the uh, train car and and goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and and effectively the court says that um, you know states are allowed to have these separate facilities as long as they're equal. And it kind of creates this lie that, you know, a, a, a racist infrastructure is actually going to create an equal institution for a class of people that they are trying to hold and, and, you know, a second class citizenship. Um, and so that decision in Plessy v. Ferguson allows the sort of proliferation of laws um, in several states. So Alabama, um, the reason why you have the University of Alabama Huntsville um, is because Alabama passed in 1901 Section 256, which banned, um, you know, integrated education in the state. Um, Kentucky, they don't pass their law segregating education in the state until 1904. Um, and so, you know, we, we often think about these laws enforcing segregation as something thing that happened, you know, a long, long time ago, but this is like, um, you know, 25 years before um, my grandfather's born. Um, and so, you know, it is, it, this is all kind of very recent and, and um, that lie of separate but equal really propped up um, the South's ability and, and, you know, other regions ability to, to sort of um, uh, codify and and create classes of institutions that they were going to fund at woefully inadequate levels. Well, and it did seem through the book, and I wondered how you ended up feeling about this, it did seem that in, in, in many cases, the HBCUs were essentially developing uh, as almost like a release valve of, of pressure on desegregating schools. In some ways, um, yeah. And, and I think 
what what HBCUs, I think the important thing to remember about what HBCUs were then and even even now, um, you know, as the the states were like, well, we have these these separate institutions, you know, there are these places that even the students, listen, the students are saying that their their faculty members are, are fantastic. And that is that was true. They did have fantastic teachers. Um, uh, Jelani Favors, uh, you know, a professor who, who just um, announced that he's going over to North Carolina and he has a great book called Shelter in a Time of Storm. And he talks about the way that HBCUs really sustained and built up um, you know, this, the, the black middle class um, through the faculty who actually cared about their students. But mm-hmm. as, you know, William T.B. Williams, the professor that Kentucky, uh, the, that Kentucky brought in, um, said, right, the professors were underpaid. So you were, you were, they were doing this, you know, incredible service for these students and providing this incredible opportunity, but, but they were also being discriminated against at the same time. And so these institutions, even if they were kind of like, um, for some states, they thought of them as a release valve, they were really doing um, incredible work and, and continue to do that incredible work for a population that oftentimes is underserved by, um, you know, the, more, the majority of, of four-year institutions. Yeah. We're talking with Adam Harris, a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of a new book, The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. And we would love to hear from you. Have you observed segregation in higher education? Did you attend an HBCU? And what was your experience there? How should the U.S. make amends for racist policies and practices in higher education? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more from Adam Harris after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Adam Harris, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of a new book, The State Must Provide Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. Adam, uh, I want to talk about Berea, um, this college in Kentucky, in part because you use it as a way of showing that 
even at the time, you know, whether it was the 1850s or 1890s or other places, there were people who did not agree, white and black, who did not agree with what was going on with racial discrimination in schools. Can you give us just like the, the capsule history of Berea? Because it kind of shows the way that these laws forced institutions, even with sort of noble intent, to contort themselves. Yeah, so so Berea College um, was was founded in the 1850s by John Fee, a Presbyterian minister, um, who who really believed, um, you know, and and thought to build a college um, out of a sort of biblical foundation. It, it's a it, his sort of thought for the institution comes out of Acts, um, and it says God is made of one blood all the people of the earth, um, and and you know he wanted to create an integrated coeducational institution where students lived and learned and worked together, um, you know, right next to each other. And, 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 you know, so from that foundation, you know, a lot of people at the time in Kentucky, you know, this was an institution established in the heart of the state. They did not agree um, with with him. Right. There were several times where he was violently attacked. Um, and so he was he was forced out of the state before the Civil War, um, came back to the state after the Civil War, reestablished um, Berea College. And, you know, into the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, Berea is really a, um, a 50 50 institution, right? Half of the students are, are black, half of the students are white. And it is kind of this proof positive that integrated co-educational education in the South, right, can work. Um, and, you know, only by state action was Berea's initial mission, that original mission actually pulled apart, right? They survived actual physical attacks. Um, you know, the Civil War did not break this institution apart. It was only through state legislation. And so in 1904, uh, Kentucky State Legislature passed what is known as the Day Law, which segregated um, Berea College. It said that uh, a institution could not operate an integrated college um, or, you know, uh, primary school. It said that you could not operate two campuses within 25 miles each of each other. If you did operate a campus or if you were even caught teaching an integrated class, you would be fined yourself. So teachers would be fined, a, you know, unthinkable amount of money per day. And so it was really this sinister law intended to, to break up this institution with this, um, you know, really fantastic mission. And, and ultimately through that mission, the other reason I wanted to highlight Bree in the book is is only because of that original mission has Berea been able to to sort of reclaim uh, its ability or its its um, enrollment. It's almost back to being a 50-50 institution between um, white students, black students, Latinx students, um, you know, uh, Asian students, uh, international students. And so they're 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 able to to claw back parts of that original mission because of that foundation they had. And a lot of higher education does not have that foundation of equality and equity. Yeah. I want to talk about this era, the civil rights era, and the ways in which higher education battles sort of presaged what was to come with uh, primary and, and secondary schools. Can you walk us through some of that history, which, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't know in the, the detail that I had for sort of the post-Brown uh, era. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because, you know, before I started covering higher education, I actually wasn't aware of the role that um, you know, these higher education cases played in this broader infrastructure of kind of 
creating or, or leading up to Brown v. Board. So um, in the 1930s, you have this case in Missouri where the NAACP has found a young man, Lloyd Gaines, who wants to go to law school, right? He wants to be a lawyer. And you know, he lives in Missouri, so he wants to study law in Missouri because the best way to to learn the laws of Missouri or to study, uh, you know, seems reasonable. Law, yeah, <laughs> it seems reasonable. Right. Stands to reason. And and so over several years, um, Gaines is, you know, working the case is sort of working its way through the courts. The state um, is ultimately told by the Supreme Court that at the very least, if you want to believe this lie of separate but equal, at the very least, you have to have a separate law school for black people to attend in the state. Um, and, and, you know, his case, the, the, the tragedy of Lloyd Gaines's case is that, you know, there are places on the University of Missouri's campus now that are named for him, but he was never able to step foot on that mm. campus because he disappeared. Um, and no one knows what happened to him. They haven't been able to say definitively that he was murdered or definitively that, that he, he went somewhere. Mm. But, you know, the tragedy is that his family, right, they lost a person. This was a family member that they were never able to see or speak to again. Mm. Um, and, you know, fast forward 10 years, uh, you have another sort of series of cases um, between Ada Louise Sipple Fisher's case, where she's trying to attend law school as well in Oklahoma. So even after the Supreme Court says, hey, Southern states, you have to create these separate institutions at the very least, these states are still not doing it. Um, Oklahoma tries to rush a law school into place in five days for Ada Louise Sipple Fisher. Um, uh, then you have the McLaurin case where after he's admitted to the university and, you know, breaks that glass ceiling, he's literally put into an anteroom. Um, and and uh, as Thurgood Marshall, you know, said that one person told him, you know, that man is peeking in like he's not actually in the classroom um, learning. So they were still trying to keep up this this kind of guise of, of segregation, even as the courts were telling them that they at least needed to provide an equal education. You know, they, they ultimately end up putting bars in the classroom to segregate black and white students. So it really shows the, you know, when I got into these sort of granular details about the lengths that states were going to, it, it became, you know, it's really fascinating and also disheartening how much states did to preserve. Um, it was absurd. Like reading all the details, you just go like, what are they doing? I mean, they're the because <laughs> it was just like all those little details, I think, add up to um, you know, obviously systemic discrimination. But the way that it just played out in those exactly like putting someone basically in the, the waiting room to watch the class. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it seemed to happen time and time again. Right. And in, in Arkansas, they they um, they had his held his classes in the basement at, at different times. And you know, it's like the, the ways that states were really fighting and just holding on and clamoring to any little bit of segregation they could and the ways they really stayed as segregated as federal and state conditions allowed them to. Yeah. Want to bring in caller Corinne from Oakland. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, good morning. Welcome. Hey, congrats, congrats, Adam, on the book. I was so excited to be listening to KQED from Oakland and to hear Alabama A&M University. I am from Huntsville, Alabama, proudly, and an alum of Florida A&M University. And I am so happy to hear that this conversation about HBCUs with respect to Kamala Harris, our first um, female vice president being an alum of Howard, and with Nicole Hannah-Jones taking on an esteemed role at Howard University. 
one of the things I wanted to point out for the listeners is the role that these institutions play in the broader community, not just for the students on campus, but for the farmers that live in, in rural America attending these HBCUs for cooperative education support, and also for young students like myself who attended summer programs at Alabama A&M University every summer. And I think it made the difference for me academically as I went on to attend a top-rated law school and, and um, practice on Oakland for a major corporation. So thank you for this topic today. Oh, thank you so much. Do you want to talk about that, Adam? Just like the the role of these institutions in the broader community? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, oftentimes, right, HBCUs are located like very centrally in, in Black communities. So if you're thinking about Jackson, Mississippi, like right around um, Jackson State University is, is a, you know, is it's situated directly in the black community there. If you go out to Alabama A&M um, and Mississippi Valley State University, right? And in, in been Mississippi is about 90% black. Um, and so the role that these institutions play in, in sort of reaching their hands back out into the community to help support and build up that community is incredibly important. I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that call and always nice to hear someone else from Huntsville. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you know, Adam, despite that the book closes with the a series of lawsuits that have been brought um charging essentially that states have systematically underfunded black institutions mm-hmm. can you walk us through that and how those settlements have or have not been enforced by the government yeah so those settlements, right, the, the one I use as the example in the book is is the Ayers case, right? And so this was a case started in 1975 um, where Black Mississippians, including Representative Benny Thompson, who um, is is the U.S. congressman from, from Bolton in Hines County, Mississippi, uh, and, and for, for almost 30 years, right, this case is sort of working its way through the courts and, and really um, helps define it's the 1992 um, Supreme Court decision really helps define what it means for a state to fundamentally desegregate its higher education system. Um, and that, that has a lot to do with its treatment of its historically black colleges. Uh, and so by, by you know, the early 2000s, um, this case had been going on so long, original plaintiffs had died, um, and, and they were really sort of looking for uh, um, a, a resolution. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, these these are hard, intense fights that take up a lot of people's lives. And so, you know, by this point, they they settle for five hundred million dollars over seventeen years, split between three institutions. That that settlement was deferred for a couple of years. So next year is literally the end of of that settlement. And there's still you know very real issues in that system, as you mentioned earlier, um, the drainage on system. There was a million dollars in that. Um, in that settlement for to fix the drainage at Mississippi Valley State University. And when I went down there in 2018, it had rained not long before. And I saw, you know, the browning of the green spaces that, that you know, they just wouldn't drain right. But the way that I've explained it is like, 
the, the sort of deferred maintenance that's happened on campuses is if you have, um, you can brush your teeth and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm brushing my teeth every day. But, but if you're not given a toothbrush or you don't have a toothbrush, I don't have the funds to buy a toothbrush, then that sits for a little bit. It turns into a cavity. You need a filling. Okay, I don't have the money to go to the doctor to get a filling. So I'm going to put that off for a little bit. Okay, now it's a root canal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, okay, I don't have the money for a root canal right now. So actually now it's an extraction. And, um, and so it's like, it just gets worse and worse. And it takes more and more money to end up um, solving and fixing and addressing that problem. Yeah. And so that's the situation that a lot of these institutions are in now. And, and you know, there are some institutions, yes, like North Carolina A&T University, a thriving HBCU, but that's not because of, you know, this, this lavishing of state support. That's in spite of, um, you know, these, these years of discrimination. So if these institutions were, were provided for and, and supported in the way that they should have been, um, you know, for the, the last century plus, where would they be now? If they're still doing this work of, you know, they're about 3% of the four-year nonprofit colleges in the country, but they educate about 25% of Black STEM graduates, um, 50% of Black lawyers and doctors, 80% of Black judges. If they are able to do all of that with the limited resources they have been provided, what would they have been able to do um, if they were given appropriate resources or even, you know, marginally what was required to do the work? Yeah. Um, Wanted to make one small uh, correction to something I said earlier. Monica tweets, Charles R. Drew University in Los Angeles is not recognized by the U.S. Department of Education as an HBCU. However, it is recognized as a historically black graduate institution and a, as a minority-serving institution by the U.S. Office for Civil Rights. Thank you for that, Monica. Um, uh, question for you, Adam. Michael tweets, Doesn't affirmative action solve the problem of separate but equal? Affirmative action gives African Americans a seat at the table with future leaders from other races. HBCUs now seem as obsolete as women's colleges. Um, Adam, I assume you disagree with that, but how do you disagree with that? And what would you say to Michael? I, so I, I actually write in the book um, about the ways that affirmative action is woefully inadequate as a remedy for historical discrimination and ongoing discrimination in higher education and how it was blunted as a remedy in 1978 when the, with the Bakke decision at the University of California Davis's medical school. Um, so in, in 1961, right, when, when it entered the federal lexicon as this idea of affirmative action, institutions really started to um, think about ways that they could increase their you know, minoritized student population, right? Because the federal government had also, you know, they recently passed a bill in, you know, 18, or 1965 um, that, that had Title VI in it. You cannot discriminate against a, you know, a, a class of students, um, whether that's racial, um, you can discriminate on the basis of sex, uh, and, and receive federal funds. And so they, they started looking for ways to enhance their student populations. And that's when you get race-conscious admissions. But by 1978, that is effectively blunted as um, as this remedy for historical discrimination and only used in the sense of, you know, sort of this broad diversity. And um, it's important to note that in the opinion, Justice Powell says that, you know, we shouldn't, he sort of talks about it as like a, a punishment for white students to have affirmative action and that they can't get into seats that um, black students have been ex- historically excluded from. You know, fast forwarding to today, um, and as I mentioned, the sort of statistics about um, black students at 
um, historically black colleges. I, I think it's also important to, to look at the rates at which black students go to the sort of most selective institutions in the country, the institutions with the highest amount of resources. If you look across the AAU institutions, so the um, there's about 60 some odd institutions, incredibly selective institutions. If you if you really survey those schools, you see about five, six percent black students on campus, even in states with incredibly large black populations. Auburn University, for instance, has about 5% Black students. And they've known it's an issue since, you know, the middle of the 1980s when a federal judge said on the same day Bo Jackson won the Heisman that Auburn was the most segregated institution in the state. And so what we're seeing now is this like increasing stratification of higher education where Black students are attending institutions that have the fewest resources in order to help them be successful in college. And the last point I will make is it's often, um, people often point to HBCUs and say, oh, well, why do we still need them? Black students can go anywhere. Um, but, you know, there are more than 11 uh, predominantly white institutions in the state of North Carolina. They educate about 22% of Black students in the state of North Carolina. Um, the HBCUs, the five HBCUs in North Carolina, educate 25% of the Black students in the state, and the community colleges educate the rest of them. Um, if you look at Oklahoma, between Oklahoma, the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University, there are almost more Black students at Langston University, the HBCU there, 1,450, than there are at, um, at those two institutions combined. Um, and, and those are institutions with, you know, together with about 40,000 undergraduate students. So if, if you sort of think that the, those in, these institutions are obsolete or there's no need for them, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. They're, they're still doing that yeoman's work yeah. of educating the student body that, that a lot of, um, you know, the most selective institutions are not serving. Yeah. Maybe with our last 30 seconds here, what about Californians who think that this isn't our problem because, you know, we are in the West and we don't have the exact same history as, say, Mississippi? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, one, just looking at a place like UC Berkeley, a place that is, um, you know, the UC system being a, a land grant system um, and the, the sort of stratification that exists in California, right? As I was saying a little bit earlier, um, Black students are more likely to attend colleges that cannot afford to spend as much money on them. So the stratification doesn't look as much like um, uh you know, black students only going to HBCUs or only going to the PWIs. It's like, how are how is the state funding its community college? California is doing a good job, but it's 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 not doing you know as much as it could be. Maybe those community colleges should be receiving more funds because they're doing more work to educate a population that needs a little bit of extra resources to, to be successful. We've been talking with Adam Harris, staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of The State Must Provide: Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. Thank you so much, Adam. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.